In the age of Instagram and social sharing, brick-and-mortar businesses offer a unique advantage that even the biggest and best online platforms can't compete with. On Brick and Mortar Reborn, we talk with business owners and industry experts about what they're seeing work best for brick and mortar businesses who aren't just competing with their online counterparts, but thriving in spite of all the options that customers now have. We'll share exactly what you can do to set yourself up for success with an experience that wows your customers and keeps them coming back for more. And now our host, Bobby Maramat. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Brick and Mortar Reborn. Today, we have a very special guest, Suchi Ramesh. She is the founder and CEO of Suchi Incorporated. Welcome, Suchi. Thank you. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, Before we get started, if you can tell the listeners a little bit about your company, and I'm curious, actually, how you started, started everything, and tell me a little bit about the company as well. I have a fairly geeky past. I'm a software engineer with an MBA in software. So I was in predictive data analytics and data science for 10 years before starting Suchi Inc. But that was useful in the sense that um, when starting the company, I wanted to use technology as an instrument to create change in large industries that were fragmented. And so that's really what we've set out to do with supply chains. And the thesis is that supply chains, we started with fashion. In fashion, there's many different entities spread across the world. Things are not fast enough. And both the digital and physical system, they're both broken. Suchi Inc. began as a solution with the digital supply chain. So the Suchi Grid is a cloud-based system, provides minute-to-minute data tracking analytics. And all the entities across the supply chain, uh, whether it's factories, suppliers, mills, and the eventual buyers all transact on the software. So our software is delivered in two ways. Folks could just buy into the software as a way to connect across the entire supply chain. It's a very lightweight, intuitive system. And then the second way for companies interact with us is by leveraging our software and our sourcing platform. So we also have factories that are connected through the software and companies can work with us to both get the digital solution, but also have us be a manufacturer and an importer of records. So we leverage the factories in the back end to deliver physical product. So we began with fashion. Now we're in PPE. We're also in office products. So we're also, which is always a part of the plan, starting with fashion, now branching into other industries as well. So it's been pretty exciting. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Was there a reason you started with fashion? Was that was that where you felt the supply chain was most broken or what got you into fashion initially? Yeah, just the the study and the research, just huge market. It's trillions of dollars in value. And just the way brands and retailers operated in with respect to there was such a disconnect between how long it was taking for them to get product and how quickly on the other end consumers wanted the product and how quickly consumer tastes were changing. So it just seemed like two very different, you know, the speed requirements on one side and the actual lack of speed in catering to the consumer. So it was just huge opportunity, huge challenge, big market. So it made sense to start with fashion. And then we've always wanted to branch out beyond that. We see our solution as cross-industry. And uh, so over the last three to six months, we've put a lot of effort into taking our expertise and branching into other industries as well. As you've been working in the industry, what are some biggest changes that you've seen and then kind of the customer consumer behavior so far in the last you know few years, if you will? Number one, I think from a consumer standpoint, consumers want a lot more transparency to what they're buying and how what they're buying has been made. So that's one. Um, and consumers also want things much faster. So that's one change in the consumer side of things. But in terms of changes, I think we've seen that a lot of decision makers at companies, whether it's fashion, whether it's medical products, or even just other procurement organizations, one of the big problems and the obstacles they face and we've seen and observed is that uh, systems they use are very broken or they're really legacy old-fashioned systems. 
And many times you see that just because a company is large and has invested a lot in technology doesn't necessarily mean that those systems are new. And most times, more the investments in tech, the more uh, these systems are not talking to one another because they're all they're just sitting in their own corners. So we're seeing one of the changes is that B2B softwares are becoming more like B2C systems, very lightweight, intuitive, cloud-based systems, mobile-first philosophies. And for the decision makers at these large organizations that are smart enough to make purchase decisions on next-gen softwares, they are definitely ahead. Um, and so those, those are some of the changes that we're seeing. What's the importance of technology here, you know, during and post, you know, COVID-19 in in your mind? It's funny, uh, the system we've developed, which is a Suchi Grid, and I spoke about that just when we started 10 minutes ago, it was always designed to be a very intuitive, we call it our test for how successful the product is, is whether a three-year-old could use it. And the reason we wanted to, we we over-engineered it for simplicity. And I say over-engineered because it's almost, it's, it's definitely, as somebody that started my career coding, I know it's tougher to design something that's very intuitive versus something that's really layered. And so having said that, we also wanted to make sure we democratized participation and empowered access for somebody on the factory floor or someone that was in the logistics team, you know, taking care of shipments into a boatload. And that was so much more with all of us working from home, whether it's white collar jobs or blue collar jobs. I mean, you know, we see that so many folks that are unemployed right now, and the reason that they are is really that they've gotten so used to needing their jobs are really defined around needing to be physically present somewhere. And so how do you empower these folks or how do you not have organizations break apart because these people are not at their jobs? And that's really what you know successful softwares are about, where you could digitize workflow, not just for folks that are traditionally behind a computer, but how do you digitize workflow for somebody whose job is not quote unquote white collar? And I think the the softwares that do that are really set up for success with COVID and post-COVID. As you've been working with different retailers, of course, being in the fashion industry, you're, you're going to, or being a fashion enabler, you're going to be working with retailers. What are some things that retailers should do to prepare for some of these changes in the market? The first thing is, um, I mean, there's so many, I'd say four or five things we've seen that are successful. You know, these are strategies that we were talking about as very uh, essential even before COVID. And I think those that are following these are set, better set up for success during COVID as well. One is seasonless designs meaning that you really have designs that make sense all year through and are not specific to a certain event or time of year. And so that also helps create a supply chain that's more nimble in real time versus planning. When you're planning for seasons, you're planning six months ahead. And so if if something were to change with respect to the macroeconomics, the whole thing breaks versus if you have a real-time cycle system of replenishment that just sets you up for better success. The second is diversifying supply chain presence, very, very critical. For those that were entirely dependent on China, when COVID started, it was about five months of, you know, what are we going to do? You know, not that an event will only impact one part of the world, but knowing that most often than not, events are at a specific period of time more prone to impact one part of the world. Uh, You're just hedging your risks by diversifying a supply chain strategy across the world. So that's very critical as well. So the first seasonless design, second, diversifying the supply chain. And to me, the third is probably the most important, which is your tech stack, and then building a team that knows how to build a tech stack. So what I mean by that is, I mean, again, um, the world that I came from in the past, um, investing more, you know, most of R&D spend would go into tech and analytics, right? And then you you talk about industries like telecom and, you know, even big retailers. But when you talk about fashion retail, on the other hand, and you go into a big fashion conglomerate that may be billions of dollars in size, they're not spending much money on having heads of teams that, are really data scientists or engineers that are just tasked at look, 
identifying and exploring and investigating the best of breed software. So I think the companies that do that in fashion retailers or retailers that do that are really set up for success where you treat data as the ultimate asset and not really the physical product that you're making. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, and I think that's the biggest component of making sure that you're using data to make uh, decisions across the value chain uh, in general terms. As you're looking for this, are there like key areas of software or the tech stack that companies should be looking at? I know it's different per the different companies, but are there kind of things across the board that you recommend as kind of features or, or decision points and, and bringing in uh, software? Well, I mean, I think one is uh, having the the factory or the manufacturer, you know, ha- empowering them to have a seat at the table. So we've of- often seen that where you have systems, there's a lot of focus on the design, product development and inventory and warehousing, warehouse management systems. But we've seldom seen a really intuitive system that empowers participation at the factory floor. And when, when, you know, a lot of these supply chains, they're spending so much money on that part of the supply chain, but that's not digitized. So I'd say investing in that. The second is we spoke about this, uh, having an intuitive interface. What that what does that mean? Is cloud-based, nimble, not something that's on-prem, not something that needs, you know, you know, disconcerted and, and downloaded. A mobile first philosophy is super important so that you know, like we said, jobs that are not bound to a system, they carry it on the mobile phone. The third and most important is, I mean, if you if we think about Apple or Salesforce, I mean, these companies have continued to grow with double-digit growth rates. And the reason is that at some point in their journey, they decided that they were going to become application platforms and not just a single software. And we're going to see something like that happening with uh, the fashion industry as well. But I think a lot of these companies should, as a first step, look to connect everything, right? So we're talking about two different things, but uh, what we need is a foundational wrapper that can connect everything and collect and get all of the data so, uh, together in one place so that you could build analytics on it. But I think those are some of the trends we see is successful companies. So those are two separate points, but companies that really invest in having a system that connects or sits as a wrapper across everything else. And that's what our Suchi grid is as well, but that allows a foundation for data and analytics. And then from there on, I think, you know, some of the most successful systems, uh, there's a big opportunity to for software or some software provider, and we hope it's us, to be that ecosystem where other applications can be built on top of it. Switching gears a little bit to really the retailing side, what do you feel like, you know, retailers, I know Omnichannel is kind of a buzzword, but what can uh, companies do to, A, do you believe in, you know, an Omnichannel approach? And B, what can companies do to bridge the gap between online and offline uh, these days to be able to connect with their customers? You know, to me, it's, you know, omni-channel is a word that's just thrown around a lot, but having a seamless consumer experience. And I think the part that I'll focus on as an answer to that is just, again, going back to having all the systems connected. If you have to be able to provide a customized, seamless experience to every customer, whether they were shopping online or offline, it's really about having all of the parts of the supply chain connected so you have an informed view and you have uh, very powerful data. So I think from a back-end standpoint, to be able to enable a better omni-channel experience, it's, it's going back to what we spoke about, is having systems that connect all the parts of the supply chain. So the view of the data for a particular customer and their his- history is really exhaustive and comprehensive. And then second, I think architecturally, and this is getting a little nerdy, but architecturally having the back-end infrastructure and the data servers and the the server farms to be able to really, then once you have all the data, you have to be fast enough to be able to make nimble decisions and to be able to say, serve something on the phone when somebody's visiting a store or someone's online. And I think having, investing in sound data architecture strategy is also crucial. But so 
from, you know, my answer is more with respect to how do you collect data, first of all, to be able to have a comprehensive view per, per customer. But second, if you have the data, then how do you massage all that and do some real-time processing in a data model or, or an advanced algorithm? And how do you do that fast enough where you have three seconds to serve something to a consumer that's visiting the, the online storefront? Absolutely. Is there a, do you have like a favorite brand that you've seen do this well or best best kind of in-store experience that you've seen? I wish the answer was different, but I think Amazon does it really well. Obviously, they have. and uh, But I think there's a lot to learn from Amazon. I think they see, almost seem like they're really scary. But, you know, they seem to be the bane of existence for all of the other retailers. But I think looking at it the other way, taking a page off their book, just how much they invest in, in the data. And I would say that part of them, you know, with their AWS, the, part of the, the, the reason that their AWS business is so successful as they started off, for, um, you know, having several farms for their own data, right? So that I think starting from there, but taking some pages off their book and other retailers can learn a lot from that, but they, they do obviously a great job of it. For the smaller retailers, I'd say the kind of the local shop, local retailer, or, you know, companies that have like a few locations, is there any advice that you have for them? I know, I know a lot of it starts with well, what your suggestion is, is, you know, data, use that data wisely to be able to figure out what your next actions are, but for the smaller retailers that don't really have access or have not had access uh, historically, of course, start to build um, you know their own kind of data elements. But any other advice that you have for them of how they can start to really get serious about their business and learn more about their customers and become more of a customer-centric organization and building up a brand? I think it's a misconception. You hear a lot of brands say, hey, I'm not big enough where I could spend money on investing in a technology or a software. And, and that's a misconception. And I know we took the example of Amazon, but of course, that's that's where in the sea of the larger retailers, what could they borrow from that? But I think the most successful brands we've seen, even at the early stages, are the ones that identify that having a data and a technology point of view and investing in that is, is very important. And it may just maybe start off with simple Excel sheets and uh, and having all the data downloaded on sales through Shopify and then doing some cuts on that. But there's a lot of softwares in the market that are very, um, both very intuitive and also, you know, easy on the pocket for a young brand. Our software, the Suchi Grid, is very uh, easy for a young company to adopt with just a couple of logins. But the other thing is, um, you know, you see a lot of young companies have a system for managing their inventory or their front end where the, where the customers are shopping. But the rest of their supply chain, really the supply chain part of it, it's really paper driven and they've outsourced that to factories or suppliers. And so that's sort of 50 years in the past and then their front end is more relevant. And, and so for young brands, I'd say the challenge and the opportunity is really how do you digitize the whole supply chain and how do you spend the time investing in softwares that uh, may be both easy on the pocket, but would also help them 10x and 100x over their five-year plan. And I think the ones that do, because you could almost argue that no matter how good your design and how good, no matter how good the product is, at some point, the question is, how do you scale for a fashion brand? And the ones that really have a strong, two things set up, set apart the uh, the young brands that end up being successful scalers. And one is know how the financials and, and the second, equally important, maybe more, is having had the knowledge and then the appetite to invest in technology early on. So in addition to being a successful CEO of a successful company, I think one of the things that I've learned from you uh, over this time that we've had together is that you know, you're also uh, a technologist. And so with that, are there technologies that you feel over the years have been adopted at a faster pace than you expected initially? Well, I mean, I think I've just at a very high level, just the unprecedented power of the mobile phone or the smartphone, right? 
how much it's changed just the way we all have carry our laptops on the phone. And I think to answer your question, the systems that have leveraged the interface on the phone to deliver better service, I think, are the best in class. So one of the key trends that we firmly believe in, and we're walking the talk on that with respect to how we've developed and designed our grid, is that we think the most successful systems of the future would be, and and I'm speaking from a B2B standpoint because we're a B2B software, but we believe the most successful B2B softwares would be would have B2C-like interfaces. And, you know, I think Dropbox was sort of the pioneer in, in that. I mean, they're obviously B2B and B2C, but it's a very, I think they started this concept of having a B2B interface that was very, very intuitive. You didn't need elaborate training for that. But that then spawned, I think, a generation of new softwares. And there's still industries out there that still, you know, a lot of respect for SAP, but I think, you know, take them to be one end of the continuum where you, you spend maybe 800,000 bucks with the license, but you're spending 4 million bucks with the implementation. Right? So that's one end of the continuum. And then you take the other end of the continuum where you have a B2B system where you probably spend close to zero on implementation. So I think those are the kind of softwares to look out for in a good way. And there's many, many examples uh, you know, like that. And they especially have a lot of opportunity in industries like fashion and medical equipment and construction, insurance, real estate, because the kind of systems there are really old. So there's there's some examples that, you know, that come to mind, but that's how we're developing the philosophy. So I particularly love systems and technologies that that I could pick up right away and I and I could get configurable reports and get the kind of data I need at my fingertips without necessarily needing months and months of training. Suchi, what's the what's the future of retail look like? What is your thought? Oh, wow. I mean, I think that question was always a, a challenging <laughs> a one, one even before COVID. And now with COVID, it's just yeah. like, how do you even begin to answer that? <laughs> um, I think COVID's really exacerbating, in good ways and bad ways, the push for change. And I think when I answer these questions, I answer it from the standpoint of things that I can intelligently comment on, which is I always go back to the geeky answers. <laughs> I think what it's going to push is um, is just a, for retail, just a uh, more of a push towards easier digital solutions. I think stores and physical footprints were, were kind of suffering already. And that's um, the death of the physical stores is going to be expedited. Not that you're not going to have physical stores, but I think the store closures will continue to a point where it becomes being in a store is more experiential. And I think we're going to have a lot of companies be forced to, to what we spoke about earlier, look at. I think all the retailers that are successful will become data companies are the ones that want to be successful, recognize that their primary asset is really data and that enables, you know, the well-being of the physical uh, items that they're selling. So I think those and these are all positive changes. And I think COVID just kind of expedites these retailers to start thinking and enforcing those changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was actually talking to a retailer that's kind of a mid uh, mid-sized retailer the other day. And then one of the things that they said is, their sales are actually up during this time, although they can't open the store. And the reason really is that they're, you know, they're, they're really focused on using that data that they learned about their customers in store to be able to use that on the digital side to be able to target their customers. And now what they're thinking about doing is using that data back again in the store to educate customers as they come in and build better experiences in their locations. And, you know, with that, they're actually thinking, hey, let me pick up some competitors if they don't make it uh, in this in these COVID days, although I'll be sad, but, you know, they're using data to be able to actually interact with their customers and, and be able to build up their companies during this time of uh, uncertainty. So uh, I, I think it does go back to, you know, one of the things I heard loud and clear from you goes back to, you know, data and using that wisely uh, to be able to make some some decisions in your business and connect with your customer better, really. 
Yeah, and I think also a lot of retailers, one last point to make is, you know, we think about data and analytics and a lot of other industries are at analytics 5.0 in, in their phase of adoption, adoption phase 4.0, 5.0. And I think you get 90% of the value in terms of just having an impact on your top line, bottom line. You talk about data just by better collecting the data, which is connected systems, collecting the data and very, very intuitive reports. So I think 90% of the value is just very, very, it's just collecting it, packaging the data and intuitive reports out of that, which is, if you look at that, that's really analytics 1.0. And then the remaining 10% is like incremental improvements as you go up the analytics spectrum to predictive models and, you know, machine learning systems. And I think companies, retailers can benefit a lot just by over-indexing and over-focusing just on 1.0. Well, thank you. That was a wealth of information. Any last thoughts for our listeners here? No, I, I think you covered uh, a pretty, you know, you had some great questions. I think that's it. And I appreciate the time and, you know, stay safe. Absolutely. Likewise. Uh, again, uh, founder and CEO of Suchi Incorporated, Suchi Ramesh. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Brick and Mortar Reborn. To find the resources mentioned in the show and detailed show notes, head over to brickandmortarreborn.com.